Hi, I'm Allie Gertz. And I'm Julia Prescott. And, and we're, we're going, going round Springfield. Springfield. Ooh, that felt good. <laughs> that felt real good. Mm, <laughs> hot off the presses with our new intro. Uh, welcome to another episode of Round Springfield. Um, this is, of course, formerly Everything's Coming Up Simpsons. This is the podcast where we talk to Simpsons folk about non-Simpsons things. But don't you worry, Simpsons finds its way to creep Simpsons, in there. Simpsons has a way of coming up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and we welcome it, especially for special guests that we have not previously had on, which is the case today. And I don't want to waste any time up top unless you have anything, Allie, that you want to waste. You know, I, I was wanting to cry a little bit getting okay. into our intro, but it'll come naturally. <laughs> so <laughs> we are very excited for our guest today. Can you please welcome? I uh, will please welcome. She is the voice of the one, the only Lisa Simpson, please give it up for Yardley Smith. <laughs> Woohoo! I always oh say, please God. give it up. <laughs> yeah, people are Who honking. Who are we talking to? I know. Exactly. <laughs> I'm so used to, I did stand up for 10 years, I'm so used to being like, and everyone, please! So now it's just like people in traffic honking, honking, honking. I, I think it's also funny to imagine like people folding their laundry, which is what I'm doing when I'm listening to podcasts, and it's like, woohoo! <laughs> right. <laughs> And then their husband across the house going, did you say something? No. 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 Nothing. I appreciate the intention. I feel like the right. audience gets it, too. Yeah. It's very kind. Yes. It's very gracious. Well, welcome to our show. Thank We're you. so excited to have you. Thank I mean, you. I think it goes without saying that Allie and I are Lisa's. And so this is a room full of Lisa's. Are we allowed to say that to Lisa herself? Can we? Indeed, indeed. I'm so always so honored when people come up to me. All ages. Yeah. You know, men and women come up to me and tell me that, that Lisa Simpson inspired them, got them through a hard time. Yeah. Um, or that they fully identify with her. My theory is actually that all of the writers on our staff are <laughs> Lisa Simpson. Yes. Because they were all misfits. Mm-hmm. Because they were all the smartest people in the room. Yeah. And so now they're working out all that childhood angst through Lisa Simpson. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I would say yeah. that's true for everyone except for Al Jean, who I identify as database. <laughs> <laughs> I think he would agree. I hope. <laughs> Although I feel like, well, my theory is that, you know, Lisa Simpson, so her, her chronic plight is, you know, anytime you do something really well, it sets you apart from your peer group, which yeah. is especially hard when you're a kid. So if it's music, sports, for me, it was drama. I was, you know, I did a lot of school plays, even from the age of about 12. And if you're good at it, some people will be really happy for you and some people won't. <laughs> and yes. all you want to do as a kid is fit in. So it's this real duality where you're happy to succeed at something really exceptional and at the same time now you're kind of now you're this big sore thumb absolutely so it's tough it, yeah, yeah and and i think that's one of the things that made the episode uh homer h o m r really amazing that's the one where homer has the crayon in his nose he pulls it out and suddenly he's as smart as lisa and and we get to watch someone who has transitioned into intelligence, which is a rare thing that probably only happens on The Simpsons. But <laughs> I don't know. Science is catching up. I'm waiting to pull the crayon out of my nose one day. But <laughs> it's this heartbreaking story because we've loved Lisa for so long because that's a, you know, that we've already gotten to know the characters for, uh, you know, for years until that episode came out. But it was really heartbreaking because Homer understands for the first time the plight of intelligence and how difficult it could be to be kind of the, the smart you're not, one. You're not popular. Yeah. You know, right. people like you're a know-it-all. People feel yeah. less than you. Yeah. And they think that you feel more than them, which I think is not necessarily true. No. Right. And I think it also goes to just being really good at, at something that separates you, but then also being successful. And that's something that, you know, follows you into adulthood, where like success is a mountain where you could feel really isolated because if you get to a certain point, you can't turn to other people and relate to them and they can't relate to you. And so that becomes something that I can see a lot of people wanting to kind of revert back. Especially as a child, if they're like a wonderkin, to revert back and, you know, be a part of a peer group so that they can have that community. Yes, absolutely. And at the same time, can you imagine, you know, peaking at the age of 17? Right. I mean, my God. (laughs) I think, eek. I mean, I was not, I was not not popular in school, but I wasn't. 
the most popular. I was what I call a floater. Yeah. Yeah, the popular kids like me a little and the <laughs> smart kids like me a little, but I kind of didn't identify with any, any one group. Right. Um, but I do remember going home and crying to my mother, like, how come I don't have more friends? Right. Right. And now, you know, I'm 55, right? So at the ripe old age, you go, <laughs> thank God I didn't peak when I was 15, 16, 17. But at the time, it's ex- it's it's excruciating. It's incredibly painful to feel as though, why can't I be, why doesn't the light shine on me? Yeah. And, and, and I'm curious how much for you that feeling kind of drew you to the arts and, and kind of uh, made you kind of not necessarily to prove anybody wrong because there was not necessarily people saying like, you'll never do this, but... Um, Unless there were and we can get <laughs> into it. <laughs> but, you know, I, I sometimes, you know, Popular people don't always have the most fulfilling adult lives. Uh, popular children don't always have the most fulfilled lives because they didn't necessarily need a talent to feel good. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like, they're kind of just like, yeah, life's good. <laughs> yeah. They lack Read a the... book. Why? <laughs> why? I'm, I'm already, I don't need to prove anything. Um, yeah, the survivalist skills have kind of skipped them in a way. Um, and it's, you know, I think a lot of people talk about how, like, character building hard times are. And there's a lot of truth to that. But I think that, yeah, when everything is sort of given to you at a very early age, you lack the need to form a foundation that's going to help your adulthood and help you see the world and, you know, how you fit in it. Whether mm-hmm. you do or you don't or, you know, carving your own path. Whether it came from a place of, you know, I don't have all the friends in the world and I want to find an elective where I'm going to be with like-minded people. What would you say kind of was your introduction to theater and just creative arts? Were your parents really supportive? Did they also perform? No, no. My parents are incredibly intellectual, super smart. Like my grandfather on my mother's side was a Rhodes Scholar. My father went to Harvard. My mother went to Radcliffe. You know, I'm the outlier <laughs> for Great. sure. I didn't even get into college. So Hell yeah. That. Hell yeah. I'm a dropout. Uh, Love it. Uh, <laughs> I went to college, but I have one class that I've yet to finish. I walked, but Julia. I didn't. I know. I know. My mom is so pissed for me sharing. It's like the one sore thing I cannot bring up. That's the premise of like a lot of 80s movies. I know. So I, think you I should... have one class left. One. <laughs> one. What's the class? I mean, it's it's Spanish. Like a whole year. I know. It's Spanish class. Listen, and this is the part that's really embarrassing. I am of Mexican descent. I know. I know. Okay. Okay. I, okay we're just going to leave, leave that right there. We'll leave it right there. You guys handle the rest of this. Good God. Aye, aye, aye. Uh, <laughs> and we live in a city where there's Spanish all around us. Everywhere. Yes. Anywho. Constant reminders. All right. See, um, uh, there is. <laughs> <laughs> it's not off the table. Maybe I'll do it. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Um, No, no. I knew that really that I wanted to be uh, an actress when I was about seven. So there was a woman in my neighborhood who had, I think she had eight children. And she turned her one-car garage in Washington, D.C. into a theater every summer. And she would – it was pretty great. And she would dress us all up. She would corral all the kids. And then we would lip-sync to popular musicals like The Sound of Music and Fiddler on the Roof. Lip-sync? Yeah. I love it. So it wasn't like we wouldn't actually put on a play. Right. You just sort of keep us out of trouble, I think. You know, get us all together. And on Saturday nights – all of the parents would stand, the kids would sit in this one car garage, and then the parents would stand in the alley, right, mm-hmm. looking over. And she also did living portraits. So, oh. if, you know, yeah. so you just stand there like a portrait uh-huh. with music playing in the background. And so I was a Mary Cassatt painting called The Girl in Straw Hat. Oh. And it's this little girl in a straw hat wearing a little gray frock. And I remember I was about six years old. And I remember the first time I did it, standing behind this curtain and being so nervous, my knees were knocking. (laughs) And when the little curtain was pulled back, the light hit my face and my knees stopped knocking. I love that magic. And I remember thinking, (laughs) oh, oh, all right, well... Okay, maybe this is maybe this is where I belong. Yeah. And then I was a kid who worried a lot. I worried a lot. I cried a lot. I took everything personally. I was a fretful child for not a lot of good reason. I just was sort of I just worried a lot. And so um 
But at the same time, I thought, okay, world domination or bust. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I had huge dreams. Again, like how? It was this extraordinary <laughs> duality. And so I do think when I started doing real plays, when you actually started at the beginning and got off the train at the end, <laughs> played a real character, right. um, didn't just lip sync, you know, right. to a song or two, um, which started in uh, – I was, I think I was 11, so I was in sixth grade, and we did I Remember Mama, and mm. I remember, um, and there was a real, there's a cat in that play, and we used a real cat. Mm. How fun. How thrilling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I remember the very first night, the first performance, my character, Dagmar, comes out with the cat, and I'm holding the cat, and the cat, of course, is fucking terrified, <laughs> and pees all over me. No. Yeah. <gasps> But I was undaunted. Yeah. And uh, my Great. first line, I get this huge laugh. And again, it was this revelation where I thought, ah, this mm. is, it was an aha moment, right? Yeah. And then I got, afterward, you go out, you say hi to your parents. But then I had other people's parents coming up to me and saying, Yardley, oh my God, you were so funny. You were so great. <laughs> That's what and, you know. and you thought, okay, this is this doesn't happen every day. Yeah, like they don't have to be nice to me. I'm right. not there. <laughs> exactly. And so it was, um, and also I, it, there was, I always say, and I didn't, I couldn't articulate this at the time, but in hindsight, even if we were doing a drama and not a comedy, which we didn't, you don't do a lot of those in, in school plays, but <laughs> occasionally you would, even if it ended badly, you could prepare yourself for it. And so that was very appealing to the control freak inside of me. Yeah. Mm. I liked that. Mm -hmm. And so it made me feel safe. And so all of those things were very appealing. And I loved that connection and that sort of fly by the seat of your pants thing you get with the audience. Yeah. It's not for everyone. I like the, okay, if you don't fucking have your shit together and you forget your line, you can't get out of it. Mm -hmm. That's on you. I liked all of that. I just, there was a huge adrenaline rush. There were so many challenges and so many hurdles and so many things to overcome. And if you did it well... It was an incredible high. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what I, I did a lot of theater growing up, too. Did you, Allie? Did you do theater growing up? You uh, did music stuff. I was in choir, and I got every solo. And uh, <laughs> I was in a... Soprano? Allie's a really Alto. great singer. I was a second soprano, but I would I, I had a pretty good range. I was able to do the first soprano and the alto. Yeah. Um, yeah. To brag. <laughs> uh, but I was in... Uh, you know, it was funny, because in middle school plays, like... In many plays, the female characters can not always be the most interesting unless they're like the comedic relief. And so I ended up playing the Irish mother in Music Man, which was fun because I did an accent and it was funny. But when the women, when the girls, we were children, were auditioning uh, for the lead, um, I would always play, and now I can't remember his name, but I would always play, uh, what is the main character's name in The Music Man? Harold, oh, Harold Hill. Harold Hill. Mm -hmm. I would always play Harold Hill opposite them as we would rehearse because it was a girls' choir and a boys' choir because I always loved playing that type of like charming masculine energy. Yeah. Um. And I was never, I never found myself good at at kind of bringing that uh, feminine. I never identified as very feminine at all. Really, growing up, I just kind and I and you know for many years it was kind of cool to be the the girl who's different. And now right. we understand, like, let's all hang out with our female companions. They're awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I relate so hard to you describing yourself as a very worrisome kid. I was a very worrisome kid myself. I'm also I was a control freak then. A control freak now. Sure. Maybe. <laughs> Same. Same. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you know it's hard when you have that in you. I find that theater, when I was a kid doing theater, I did it, you know, throughout elementary school and middle school and bits of high school. It forces you to focus in a way that other things don't. And I also really, really love that buzz, that electric energy of the crowd, of performing live, but also that feeling after you're done and you've just been through an ordeal. Yes. And especially as you describe, and I relate to this too, of being like a social butterfly in that moment, you're not like a part of many different crowds. You're part of one unit. And yes. I loved that feeling of like, we did it. And, 
even if we didn't do it, we did it. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and uh, I'm curious how that helped you sort of navigate going into adulthood and maybe, you know, sort of um, dealing with that control freak energy in a way that was constructive for you or sort of quelled the worrisome parts of, of you. It didn't really. No. <laughs> it, <I> mean... <laughs> well, good. I unless, know. Unless there's a spotlight. It's not happening. Right, right. Well, it was interesting. In some ways, I, again, in hindsight, I, I mean, I've been doing this for, well, as we said, I, so I didn't get into college. And right out of high school, I got a job in Washington, D.C. at a, a good local theater called New Playwrights Theater. And literally like three days out of high school. Amazing. Yeah, it was incredible. They actually called me. I used to go there occasionally to audition. I used to go through the paper, the Washington Post, right, and see what who was holding auditions. And I would go. And of course, I would never get the job because I was too young. But <laughs> mm-hmm. on this fateful day, they rang me up and said, Yardley, why didn't you come and audition for this musical comedy review we're doing? And I said, oh, I don't know. I just missed it. I was graduating. And they said, well, we're having callbacks. Please come. So mm-hmm. I went and I got the job. So Amazing. It was, uh, and it was because then it was sketch comedy, basically, and some singing, which I I have good pitch. We've heard we've um, heard Sim- uh, Simpson sing the blues. I know. I, I heard your episode. <laughs> oh, great! Yes, uh, I, I can't believe that I, despite being such a diehard Simpson fan, had never heard it before. It was such a great... it was a treat to have to watch you experience and it for I the first time. Loved it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Allie, we... <laughs> I'm not sure you did. <laughs> But uh, thanks for saying nice things about me. <laughs> you were great. <laughs> you were great. Some of you the were... rapping was not. <laughs> yes, you were. You were singing your heart out. I was. We can or we cannot talk about it if you don't want to. Um, I feel like we probably covered quite a bit in that episode. Of yeah, yeah. What we know about they that make situation. me sing a lot on the Simpsons. They did, or they yeah, they still they do. do. Yeah, Which and that's is, uh, because you have great pitch. I do. Yeah, but, and you um, are able to stay in the in the voice like ish. That's, Real, I, Ish. Hmm. I mean, I have a feel like I have about a four note range singing <laughs> right. as Lisa Simpson. Sure. Because to do Lisa Simpson, I do this. <laughs> and you sort of, <laughs> I sort of squeeze off my throat, which mm. is completely counterintuitive right. and antithetical singing, yeah. to singing. Mm-hmm. So they give me a lot of rope to <laughs> right. sing like Lisa Simpson. But, um, so I did this musical comedy <laughs> review and I got these extraordinary reviews in. The Washington Post and the Washington Star at the time, like crazy, like your mother would write right. if your mother was proud of you. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good <laughs> caveat. <laughs> if your mother likes you, you know. Yeah, you don't that. know our personal relationship. I'm just so, saying. Yeah, yeah. No, I Let's I, imagine a world um, <laughs> that would be that that would be the goal for me is to have something that was written like how my mom does. Because like if I if I like she she encourages me for liking things. She's just like, you're so good at liking that show so much. And it's just like, oh, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) And do you you like that or do you feel like? I take it all in. I take it where I can get it. You know, right, I, right. We're I, both big therapy heads. So <laughs> me we're, too. Love yeah. therapy. The best. Yeah, we're I'm very like, it. you can't change the people, you can change your reaction. Exactly, you know? right. So. Well said. I don't think I've ever been embarrassed once of like the pride that my parents have had for me. Like, mm. I, I think I've only embraced it. I know some people could be, what I would be embarrassed of is my mom would brush my hair until I was like 20. She would chase <laughs> me with a comb. And I'd be okay, like, that's, that's a separate episode that we really need to unpack. <laughs> I'm transitioning between therapists right now. Yeah, I'll share. <laughs> My mom gave me uh, one of the greatest compliments I've ever received recently. And I loved, like, part of it was just her pure enthusiasm in saying it. I was on the phone with her and she just said, thank God you're weird. Aww. And she said that to me. Uh, and I just, like, I love, it just felt like I was being seen. Aww. That is, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were getting really great oh, reviews that I were was. mother level. Yes, yes. So, <laughs> and it really launched me, and it led to uh, I got a two did two plays at Arena Stage, wow, which is a great 
like sort of the theater that doesn't book everything in from Broadway, right, in Washington, yeah. D.C., and they cast everything out of New York. God forbid they cast anything locally, <laughs> right, anybody. And I didn't have an agent, right? nor was I part of the union. Oh, so wow. that was a, an, an especially big deal. Yeah. And while I was there, this is actually a great sort of little side note, I did a reading for a play by Louis Black. Oh, the comedian wow. before he was super famous, wow. Louis Black. So, and then they ended up doing a production of that show the following summer, and they asked me to play the part that I had read. Great. And when I did that, all of the cast in that play was also from New York, and all their agents came out, and one of them said, oh, I think you're fabulous. I'd love to represent you. It so happens that that woman who said, I'd love to represent you, was also a woman of extraordinary integrity and really took me under her wing because, of course, I would have gone with anybody who said, <laughs> right. I think you're, you know, the greatest thing since sliced bread, and God knows. <laughs> yeah. And so I really, I've landed in the honeypot so many times mm-hmm. um, that I, I do feel as though in some ways you could frame it any way you like, but that feeling of when I was seven where world domination or bust and I'm going to be an actress. And, I'm, and, and, and at the time, you know, when I was seven, I, I think, Sorry, I keep kicking this fucking mic <laughs> stand. Um, I, I, you know, the goal was I want to be super famous because without being able to articulate it in this particular way, I felt like there were holes inside of me. Mm-hmm. And if I could get that kind of world adulation, maybe those holes would be filled. And so when I started to have this inco- this incredible success right away it all felt as though it was meant to be yeah and yet I was an incredibly hard worker I never showed up anywhere unprepared I you know don't I don't show up late I don't ask people to wait for me I you know I I feel like I earned the places that I land at but what I've, of course, learned the hard way is that you can't fill up the inside from the outside. Mm-hmm. And so back to your question of did it help me, did my success help me worry less and or become less of a, of a control freak? My success didn't do that. It was a really hard, it's been a, and I still, I still struggle with it. You know, when, when things aren't going well, my first question is, what did I do wrong? What's wrong with me? You right. know, it's a, I can teeter on that shame spiral faster than, you know, fucking I don't know what. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's real, right? Yeah. And so, and I would go to these auditions and I would be so prepared and I, I would, and my, I was this, I was ferociously ambitious. Mm-hmm. And, when I didn't get the part, I took it personally. Of course. And so, again, like the control. What do you mean I can't fucking control it, right? I was I was not graceful about it. <laughs> and so it was hard. Yeah. I, in some ways, and, and I'm sorry the answer is so long, but in oh, some no. ways. That's the show. It was. <laughs> well, it's your show, really. <laughs> um, but in some ways, I, I sort of feel like I wasn't really cut out for this profession. Wow. Yeah. Because... I didn't have the right temperament. And at the same time, nobody coaches you through it. Nobody tells you. When people say, oh, God, if you can do anything other than be in show business, they never tell you why. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and usually they say, well, maybe it's because, you know, you think it's going to go great and it's not going to go great. But that's pretty general. Right. And at the end of the day, I would say for me – it made me care about things that don't really matter. So it made me care about my appearance mm-hmm. more than that really matters. It made me worry that 12 pounds was the reason that I didn't get that job oh. or I wasn't more successful or I couldn't stay married or I, yeah. you know, you name it. Yeah. It was the stupidest fucking things. Whereas, you know what? You maybe didn't get that job because I don't know. <laughs> and yeah. so what? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I relate so hard to everything that you're saying, particularly when people don't warn you about how hard it is. And I think that it could be that that person is trying to sabotage you. Um, <laughs> it's very possible. I 
available. I'm sorry. All right, Allie. We'll talk about it later. Um, <laughs> but it could be, I think, of that, I don't know, because everybody's path in Hollywood is so specific to them mm-hmm. that it becomes, it's difficult. You can't give really, really, really great advice to somebody else and go just follow my path because it may be different for them. And I think that also, as a fellow control freak, um, I find myself, especially at an early age to now, very self-aware. And you kind of pride yourself on your self-awareness and, you know, pride yourself on your work ethic. And there is a order to everything. So you go, if I do A to B to Z, then that's going to be perfect. Yes. And when you have, when you've done A to B to C and it doesn't work out, you're like, well, then life is chaos. It's <laughs> confounding. Yeah. It re- like, I did everything. And I call that my kindergarten view of the world. Yes. Yeah. Where where you are taught if you do A to B to Z, mm-hmm. all of these things will fall into place. Yeah. And there and they don't tell you about the X factor. Yes. Right? And you're like, fuck me, what? Wait, yeah. what? And it's yeah. huge. Right. And and I don't know why for me, it took me to learn that lesson over and over and over. Mm-hmm. I, I just it it's just mind blowing. Yeah, and it's also like you don't see what's happening in like sort of I guess the backstage areas of all these different places in Hollywood. I talked to um, a couple of these women directors who just wrote and starred in this movie called Greener Grass if you've heard of it. It's incredible. It's uh, great. It's like super surreal and super indie and and it's all theirs and it just you know is such a great thing but they did short films for years and years and every time they would submit a short film to Sundance they'd get rejected and they'd be like well what the hell is wrong with us? What are we doing? And and in that sort of control freak self-awareness, it's like, okay, well, then how can I improve? And then they made a feature version of one of their shorts, which turned out to be Greener Grass. They premiered it at Sundance. And um, (laughs) they are, you know, they describe the scene of like they're waiting backstage and the programmer um, who, you know, uh, got their film into Sundance is giving a speech. And in their speech saying... We've been watching these girls for so long. They've been on our radar. We've been dying to get them in this festival. We just couldn't figure out a way to do it. It just didn't work out with, you know, like the length of the films that we needed to curate, this, that, whatever. We are so overjoyed that we're able to host them now. And their minds were blown. They had no idea. No idea. So it's, I think about that story and I'm like, you really don't know. And it it also, it sucks because you're like, well, I can't pay my rent with that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I wish. I could. <laughs> Let me know that you're thinking about me, Mr. Spielberg. And, uh, I'll tell my landlord that. But, <laughs> but it's hard because I think that, you know, we're kind of given this line when we come into Hollywood that it's all merit based and it's all, you know, like A to B to Z. And there's a whole industry around, you know, encouraging writers that all you got to do is this or encouraging actors. All you got to do is this when really it's just we don't freaking know. It's it's pretty random. Yeah, there's a random. huge random factor to it mm-hmm. that you you cannot control. And it could be really difficult too if you are a self-aware person because then you could catch yourself getting, you know, okay, well, I understand that it's not necessarily about me and that it's all these other factors, but come on, it has to be about me. I like, I know it is. <laughs> you I, know? Yeah, I actually got rejected from a writing job not too long ago and the rejection said, it's really not a matter of skill or talent. It's just about balancing personalities in the room. That's and so much worse. Than I read wow. that and I was like, uh, I'm a hoot. <laughs> so you're saying if I walked in and there was four of me, that'd be a problem? Uh, That's it was pretty confounding. damning. It was really, yeah, I've, I've had a mom. I've had them all. (laughs) Uh, Let's actually take a quick break. Nearly two decades ago, Commander Data sacrificed his life. The greatest discovery is also about Star Trek Picard. Jesse Thorne won't let us stay on the network unless we do all the Star Trek series, and so here we are. Doing a show about maybe our favorite Star Trek character of all time. If you're excited to watch the new Star Trek Picard series and you'd like some veteran Star Trek podcasters to watch it along with, we're your guys. Sorry you're stuck with us. The hell are you doing out here, Picard? Saving the galaxy? So subscribe to The Greatest Discovery. You can find it anywhere you find podcasts. Or at MaximumFun.org. 
Judge John Hodgman ruled in my favor. Judge John Hodgman ruled in my friend's favor. Judge John Hodgman ruled in my favor. I'm Judge John Hodgman. You're hearing the voices of real litigants, real people who have submitted disputes to my internet court at the Judge John Hodgman podcast. I hear their cases. I ask them questions. They're good ones. And then I tell them who's right and who's wrong. Thanks to Judge John Hodgman's ruling, my dad has been forced to retire one of the worst dad jokes of all time. Instead of cutting his own hair with a flobie, my husband has his hair cut professionally. I have to join a community theater group. And my wife has stopped bringing home wild animals. It's the Judge John Hodgman podcast. Find it every Wednesday at MaximumFun.org or wherever you download podcasts. Thanks, Judge John Hodgman. great break <laughs> i got some sun i got some air uh so yardley I, I we wanted to talk to you about some of the non-simpsons projects you've done since being on the simpsons you obviously have such a power and like a lot of celebrities don't always do anything with it <laughs> you know they you know we always talk about like oh once i make it i'm gonna help people and i'm gonna do that and not always. I don't see it happen a lot. But you're someone who Name is... names. <laughs> I do still think it'd be really fun to have a podcast where the voices are like a voice changer and people are able to come on, but we don't say who it is and everybody just airs their dirty laundry. <laughs> I think it'd be really cool. That's really funny. It'd Hollywood therapy. It'd be, it, you know, it'd be canceled in a minute. But <laughs> uh, I, I wanted to ask you uh, to, to talk to us a little bit about Paperclip Limited because it seems like such a great... Thing. And, and, and I'd love to hear it in your words uh, what this is. So I'm late to the party for having a uh, – for being a multi-hyphenate. <laughs> you know, the idea that you had to be a multi-hyphenate, you couldn't just be an actor, really came into popularity in the early 90s, I would say. And I sort of dug my heels in and said, fuck you, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm really – I'm good at being an actor and I, that's all I want to do. And it didn't serve me well. <laughs> and uh, so – but now, you know, I, I do catch on eventually. <laughs> Probably should have gone to college. You anyway. know what? We don't need to talk about college a minute more. Whatever. <laughs> um, so I, uh, before I had Paperclip Limited, I decided I wanted to have a shoe line, which I did mm-hmm. for five years called Marche Vous, and I made the shoes in Italy. And um, the point of that little tidbit is that I had a business partner named Ben Cornwell. Mm-hmm. Ben's um, original expertise was in apparel. But he's really good at anything. You say, Ben, I want to start this business. And he's like, okay, I can make that work. Wow. Yeah. So when we closed the shoe company, because we realized it really was a racket that there are no independent shoe companies anymore. Everything's owned by four massive companies. You have to get into a big box in order to make any money and to make any profit, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Uh, He said, why don't we go back to what we really know, which is show business. And From I said, shoe business to show business. That's it. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> That's the winner of this whole episode. <laughs> I'm sure it's been said. It just I had to say it. <laughs> do, you, do you know how many like shoe um, tape dispensers I got? And, really? Oh, oh Lord, all those high heel ones. Oh yeah, right, that you get at like Cape Cod. Yes. Oh, and it's like funky ant style. Yes. No. Shoe greeting cards. I'm sorry sho- about that. Oh, there's a lot of shoe bilia. Shoe. Right. It's like revealing to your family that you like frogs, and now the only thing shoe, that you get. Yeah, yeah. Shoe uh, cookie jars. Aye, aye, aye. aye, aye, aye. Anywho. Um, so, uh, so we opened Paperclip Limited, and, and the, the premise behind it was we wanted to be the people to say yes first. And it's really a development company more than a production company, although we have produced three films. Um, so far, and we have a lot of spaghetti on the wall in terms of what we're developing, and and because it's so fucking hard in this town to get anybody to say yes to anything, and you know, The Simpsons for so many reasons is the best job in the world. The very first reason is because Lisa Simpson is one of the best characters ever created on the big screen or small for um, as a female. Ever. Yes. I am so pleased and proud to be 33 and a third percent of the creation of that little girl. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really love her. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it it 
she changed the world. She's she's impacted so many more people than we could even grasp because like having a character like that on TV on the most popular show ever changed everything. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and not to pander to an audience but instead be very bold and say, yeah, we're going to have this character be really strong and have a strong point of view and, you know, even if it seems like we're forcing intellect down your throat. Well, then, fuck. We're forcing intellect down your throat. <laughs> yes. and, yeah. and we will balance that with her still having this yes. eight-year-old sense of humor. Yes. Because it's actually the only way the character works. Mm-hmm. You know, she becomes really this sort of insufferable kind of pedantic sort of... Precocious I'm, I am sometimes. Yes, right? <laughs> yes. Exactly. If yeah. we don't... If she doesn't scream with laughter at Itchy and Scratchy. <laughs> or right? beg to go to Itchy and Scratchy yes. land. Yes. Yes. 100%. Yes. So to your point, Allie, so I, if you have this incredible opportunity called The Simpsons and you don't do something with it, that's on you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I feel uh, that it is part of my, part of my desire, but also part of my responsibility to pay that forward. And so with that, Paperclip Limited is able to have a budget. And therefore, we are the people who are able to say yes first. So when we engage a writer, we don't say, we want you to write that on spec. We're able to say, we can actually pay you, you know, your WGA minimum or whatever. For the podcast, we are able to do a podcast called Small Town Dicks, which is this great true crime podcast, you know, where all of the cases are told by the detectives who investigated them. Very proud of this podcast that I co-host with uh, detectives Dan and Dave. Mm-hmm. I love their. Are um, they really identical twins? They really are identical oh twins. My God. It's fantastic. How did you find them? They are amazing. Uh, they're great. And all of the detectives we've had, I just, you know, one of the unexpected benefits of this podcast is that we sort of didn't, wasn't one of the things like, oh, this, we should do this because, but one of the things that's come out of it is it's really been a platform to highlight the excellent police work that's going on out in the world. In this day and age, especially when all we are seeing is, you know, that police officers are are these awful cops and what bad guys and, you know, and that those things are true in many in examples, but that's not everybody, and we're not going to come together unless we're able to see that there actually are some really amazing people out there. It's really a noble, amazing job if they're doing it well. Yes. yes. They, yeah. all, they all consider it a calling and not a job. Yeah. And my theory is that really 99% of them are doing the very best they can and yeah. trying to make the world a safer place. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that has just been one of the extraordinary things about it. And these, I mean, these are the people who run toward the things that the rest of us run from. Yes. I mean, it's fucking, when I leave the house, nobody's actually trying to kill me. (laughs) Right? As far as I know. That you know of. I mean, that I know of. After this podcast gets out, you better watch it. I'm going to watch my back. So we have the benefit of having a budget, and it allows us a great deal of freedom. And the other thing we wanted was, we wanted, as Ben, my partner, says, uh, we wanted to be genre agnostic Mm. so we don't just like oh we just want to do movies oh we just want to do television blah blah blah. we do uh we have a great animated um show for television called neo cats we just produced we just actually produced a really beautiful film called gossamer folds in louisiana um about it's it's for me it's really this fox and the hound story about this uh transgender woman of color in 1986 who's trying to get to new york city for the ballroom scene meanwhile this little boy played by jackson robert scott and the transgender actress we got who's brilliant and i cannot wait for the world to see her her name is alexander gray moves in next door with his family and Jackson Robert Scott and Alexander Gray form this unlikely friendship because they're both misfits and it's wonderful and brilliant and so touching and so simple yeah yeah and what I like is it's about this unlikely friendship and oh by the way one of them happens to be trans right yes. as opposed to and 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 it doesn't not deal with the difficulties of being a transgender woman of color particularly in a small town in the Midwest in the 80s wow um, but it is not the focus of the story is not necessarily the tragedies of 
just that. Right. Yeah. I'm really excited for people to see that. And it seems mm-hmm. like the because of the way that you guys go about it, that you're not deciding like, well, she needs to be played by the most famous, you know, cisgendered actor to get people in. That's what actually makes real stories come through and, and come alive because, you know, so much gets lost uh, in the in the notes process and the networks process and the money exchanging, you right, know, because right. everyone is so afraid of like, well, we can't make a movie unless we are able to attach, you know, X. Yes. And and it's amazing that these, these stories are now going to be able to be made how they were meant to be made. Right. It could demean the story, the focus of it, if it's filled, star-studded. I you agree. Know. Yeah. I think, you know, our mm. motto is... You have to, my motto is always, you have to serve the story. So we actually ended up financing that whole film. Oh, wow. And Alexandra, she sent us a tape. We sent out a casting call. She sent us the tape. Hers was the first one we saw. I knew from the minute I saw her, she was the one. We saw, we watched some others, but I'm like, nope. It's Alexandra That's all day great. long. Wow. You know, I, I also sort of have this thing, too, where, you know, there are certain directors um, where you see their films and you go, oh, that's obviously um, a Ron Howard film or that's right. a mm-hmm. Martin Scorsese film or blah, 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 blah. So <laughs> I have this thing where we're making entertainment, people. Unless yeah. it's a documentary, <laughs> it's entertainment. Yes. Yeah. And so I... And it doesn't mean it has to end up, you know, sort of all Pollyanna at the end, but you have to be glad you went. Yes. So I believe that even if it's a tragedy, even if it if it's a if it's a dark drama, you have to want to follow those people through that story. And I'm adamant about this. And so I, you know, even, you know, there'd be like Yardley because I work. We also have two other great people in the office, Nick Smith and Jordan Foley, who are producers who are so sharp. And they're like, Yardley is a great new writer, great new director, blah. I'm like, well, here's the thing. I don't like anybody in this story. And that's a problem. Yeah, It's a problem for me. Yeah. So where's the victory? Mm-hmm. Right. Give me one. Right. Yeah. Because, if you know, in order for something to be sad, you have to have stakes and the stakes have to be, I like this character and I want them to succeed. You have to pull for them. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And the same is true with comedy where you can't just have laughs. You need there to be some serious beats and some some real heart which is why usually the advice is write it as a drama first and then add the jokes in later like, interesting yeah 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 and i mean going into comedy too it's like it, it's so easy especially now for it to be this sort of flat sketch right of right. a joke 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 and that i think also goes to and i've heard a lot of other like comedy writers talk about like the jokes are the icing on the cake like don't start with the jokes because for many reasons first you're going to become attached to those jokes and then you will not not want to move around the story if there yeah. are story problems. Go, but my <laughs> beautiful <true>. jokes. <laughs> it's a rosette of jokes. Like you're on Great British Bake Off. You're like, my frosting. Oh, we can talk about it. <laughs> I started rewatching old episodes because I just need to not stress out I so know, much. Right? It's the happiest, most <laughs> the polite, happiest. and so beautiful. Because really? the food is beautiful. It and, is. and they care and about the each other. And they I love know. each other. And Noel Fielding's doing a great I job. Love him. He's crushing it. <laughs> He's great. Cruise necklaces and glasses are yes. on point anyway we can just that's our other podcast that we're gonna okay. start I'm in. yeah yeah but uh, going back to like you know it it needs to be grounded in something if so it's like any movie tv show comedy drama whatever we want to hang out with these people and i think especially true for tv are we going to want to revisit these crowd of people week after week, week, after week? and you need to have that emotional connection to it. Um, I'm also of the mind, uh, and there have been some recent um, feature releases that I'm maybe on the other side. Everyone else is kind of drinking the Kool-Aid, but like, <laughs> I don't like art for art's sake in Agreed. that way, too. I don't either. You know, if it's a tortuous experience at the movies... <laughs> I'm not exactly on board unless I'm there is a point. Yeah. I'm not your girl. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to see somebody descent into madness. I'm like, what is happening? <laughs> right. I mean, that's yeah. just not my thing. Yeah. And the other thing that we always look for in any project is what's the point of difference? If mm-hmm. every story has been told, if, if there's been 100,000 rom-coms, what's different about this? Right. right. And so we're developing a rom-com, actually a film, and we had a rewrite and I and there was this argument between the two main characters and I said to the writers I've read this fucking argument a thousand times right 
because there's no authenticity here. There's no vulnerability. Yeah. So what are we talking about? What actually happened? Why did they break up? And what, now why are they reconciling? Yeah. Just tell me the truth. Now, if you can get to the bottom of that, I'm on board. <laughs> And so I they went it. away, and they came back, and now it's 100% better. Great. And, and how much of that is coming from, you know, being an actress, where, like, you are, you know, taking on you, – you really have to know your character and develop your character. And I think that sometimes actors can become incredible writers for that reason because they're mm. thinking about a character That's in a, a way that point. maybe a writer doesn't always. For example, I'll read a script out loud for the first time and think – the person who wrote this has never said it out loud because that's not how a person talks. Or at the very least, they gave me a tongue twister. Yeah. <laughs> it was yes. a challenge. Yeah, I think that's very true that I think uh, writers – and this is something that, like, even myself as a writer, like, I, I was – realizing was a blind spot of like write characters that you think actors would be excited to play and not that I was writing characters that were very flat and very I don't know but it's like that extra push of like oh there's a person on the other side of this I think could help flesh it out in a way that is different than what it was before when you write do you um, even if that person, that specific actor won't play the character, do you envision somebody that you admire? Absolutely, all the time, yeah. And um, some of them are shoot for the moon, like I'll be like, and then John Hamm! Yeah, of course, <laughs> but why not? But I think that that's a really great uh, method to do because then it becomes more real to you and you can talk about it, you know. I mean, the goal when you're especially writing a TV show is to get it made and to make it a real thing and then when you're constructing the world of a TV show, it needs to be a real operating thing and the implication when somebody's watching it is that this is a world that you know continues going even when we're not here exactly and so it needs to feel authentic in that way and, and that can be really difficult if you don't attach those kind of visuals to it yes I, yeah. it's funny that you say that this is a world that continues when we're not here my criteria for a good performance is would, would those people behave this way in the room if they didn't know i was watching mm. yeah so yeah. if you're giving me a performance that I, I can tell is self-conscious, mm -hmm. I'm out. Oh, my God, yes. Right? I've gotten that as an individual, oddly. Like, I've had, <laughs> I've had I once uh, had someone ask me, like, who is, who is this for? Who is this show for? And it, like, really was like, wow, I didn't realize how performative I can be as an individual because I want to make people laugh, and I do make people laugh. And it was, you know, people refer to it as being on and it was something that, like, I became pretty aware of in, in high school because it was called out to me and then I took it to heart. Not in a way that I never made a joke again, but just in a way where it was like, I see people. Cause you, you can could relax. Be a, you could relax and you could be vulnerable and that it could be scary to be vulnerable because you're vulnerable. But it could also <laughs> be highly rewarding because the people who get you will get you. And, yeah. you know, I think that's something that Lisa has done in spades for so many. Yeah. And I would love to know more about just how involved you were in shaping that Lisa voice in terms of who she is, just in terms of, I think you said, 33 percent like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it's not, you know, I don't go into the writer's room and say, hey, how's this for an episode? Um, <laughs> you should. I, what's funny is I once, I actually recently asked our showrunner, Al Jean, who I know you've had on the show mm -hmm. a few times, um, hey, could I come into the writer's room and just sort of sit? And he was like, y yes. And I was like, <laughs> like that's okay. Not that, a full yes. That doesn't sound like a real yes. <laughs> and he said, we'll probably just be, like, shut up. We'd probably just be really self-conscious. And I said, well, that does, I don't, well, yeah. well, forget it then. Yeah. Forget it. I've been in there. You don't want to be in there. No. Right? <laughs> it's just eating and slapping right. each other. <laughs> but yeah. No, but I, I mean, I can understand wanting to at least witness how, I guess, the you, sausage is made. It, yes, because it feels like magic, right? Right. Yeah. Because they get it right so often that you, I think, would be incredibly fascinating to see how the process takes place. How does it go? Mm -hmm. For my part, you know, I feel like I... It's like this. So the writers start the process. They write They write the lines. Then I see those lines and I um, have a, an understanding of them based on who I think Lisa Simpson is, who she is, who she, where she lives in my heart. So it passes through that filter. Now we have 
two different filters Lisa Simpson has passed through so far. You take those two things, and now it goes to the animators, and they hear that, and they see those words on the page, and now they put their particular take on it in the in the animation and so that's why i'm only 33 and a third percent of the process right Right. Mm -hmm. and so each of those processes is so integral to the whole and is i think really lightning in a bottle i mean it is that how do you do it i don't know if you could bottle it literally then you would be, I don't know what. Sell it for a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'm curious, and, and no worries of like going into super details for this, because it's been 31 plus years yes. of being Lisa Simpson. Um, what are some highlights that you've had as the character or sort of seen the final product and been surprised by? We were talking off podcast about the episode Lisa on Ice and mm-hmm. how special that episode is. Are there like key moments um, through the character or key episodes that you think about and smile sometimes? Every time I see Lisa Simpson on television, I smile. Yeah. Me too. Every time. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. And and there's a part of it where when I see her, she doesn't look like me, right? So yeah. I, I don't really watch my on-camera performances. I don't read my interviews. I probably won't listen to this podcast for a long time. Mm-hmm. So when I watch The Simpsons, there's this piece of remove, right? So when I see Lisa Simpson, she doesn't really sound like me. She doesn't look like me. And I'm utterly delighted by her. And I'm like, oh my God, I love you so much. And I'm like, (laughs) oh my God, there's a part of me in that. I mean, it is the most extraordinarily joyful experience ever. I'm so glad that you have that with Lisa. I do. I just, she is incredible to me. Mm -hmm. Um, I did some uh, ADR the other day where we replaced dialogue. You know, they did a rewrite, and um, somebody asked me what that stands for on Twitter the other day. I'm like, you know what? I learned that a year ago, and I already forgot. I don't know. (laughs) Additional dialogue replacement? No. No. No, which (gasps) is what I thought it stood for. And the engineer who does our ADR corrected me. It's much more for them. It's not for us. might be automated dialogue replacement. (sighs) Um, but it's, it's it. something, <laughs> it has to do with the actual technical process that changed. It has nothing to do with us, Julia. I don't care for nothing that one bit. Us, I want to be <laughs> I involved. I, I want it to be about Think us. about me. I thought I'm the A saying. stood for Allie. <laughs> I, it's Allie's dialogue replacement. <laughs> and now we finally know why. Wow. Done. Done and done. Man, deep in the weeds on this Simpsons podcast, people are learning some truths. <laughs> Um, there's that I will never forget the scene in the summer of four foot two the best episode which is one of my all time favorites I'll never forget it uh, where Lisa grabs Bart by the shirt at the breakfast table when Marge turns her back and it just (laughs) fucking lets loose on him Mm -hmm. brilliant Mm -hmm. like an inch from his face I've I've a sister I've had that moment the rage I know exactly who you are I know. I know. Um, so good. I was oh. thinking of that episode earlier when you were talking about that kind of like, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to have world domination. I was thinking about it just in terms of the line of just like, you know, relax. I don't control the birds. Someday I will, but not now. <laughs> yes. I just love the idea of just like, she will. <laughs> uh, so I know that people have talked about like, especially when Hillary was running the idea of Lisa Simpson being the president. Yes. And, uh, did, did that warm your heart at all? The idea for me of Lisa, even though I guess she's fictional, I don't like to admit it, but I would love to vote for her should yeah. she be old enough. Well, the but... singularity will be real soon enough, and I assume Lisa will be real as well. I agree. I, I You know, I'm so tickled by that. Of course, it's incredibly flattering, but the truth of the matter is, is you want Lisa Simpson with the 24 staff writers behind her yeah. to be elected president. Yes. Yeah. Because because they are the smartest people in the room. And I'd be happy yeah. to voice her. Yeah. But you don't want me, Yardley, <laughs> to be president. I feel, you don't want that. I no. mean, 
we've seen in different presidencies people kind of helping the president do his job. I think that we could have this happen. Yeah. Yeah. I will say the Simpsons writers probably don't want to move from the Palisades. (laughs) 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 If I could say one thing. (laughs) That's my dunk of the month. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) Um, I don't ever want this conversation to end, and I feel like we should talk for another four hours. Oh, yes. <laughs> you probably uh, have a time limit. And I've gobbed off a lot. I'm no. Just... No, we love it. But uh, it, I don't want to end just yet. I do want to just uh, commend you just on how much like you are involved in the Small Town Dicks podcast uh, from just producing and hosting. As I was saying earlier, in terms of like people get to this uh, status and they could use their platform or, or not, it's pretty common that someone would kind of just like give their blessing and then it'd be like, okay, great. And that's my right. name on it. And that's right. enough. And it seems like everything you do, you bring such a passion and just so much integrity to the project. And it's really what Lisa Simpson would do. And it makes me so happy to know that that in so many ways is is you that is what you are and it's thank you. amazing yeah. thank you yeah and listening to it you could tell how much you care and I also wanted to say like I I really love the podcast because I mean let's face it the true crime podcast space is a crowded space I wanted to commend you for not calling it like wine and true crime <laughs> I feel like there's a subgenre. I was like looking through some true crime but I was like there's a subgenre where like they just keep putting wine in sure, <laughs> sure. but I think that uh, I really love that podcast I love your podcast because it is, you know, not making a sort of novelty out of these um, crimes and, um, you know, that you take it very seriously. You come at it from a deep appreciation and like a fascination with it. And I also really like the fact that the subject matter isn't like the sexier, like Jeffrey Dahmer kind of true crime um, subjects. Not to say that that is a bad area to talk about, but it is the everyday and yes. also, I listened to a recent episode where, you know, uh, you guys were dissecting a crime that happened to a homeless person. Mm. And I feel like a lot of those stories don't get featured because our transient situation is very out of sight, out of mind, even though it's becoming a really big problem, especially in L.A. But I think that um, I would assume that even like cops that are investigating those cases, there's a lot of baggage that comes with it being a transient um murder and sure and why so, investigate that exactly. there's nobody yeah. looking for that guy yeah but i i love that you know you approach it with that same sort of reverence as you would you know for other true crime uh situations and and so that just comes across as being so integrity filled and yeah i think that Thank makes you. your podcast stand out in a really great way um it was actually detective dan who came up with the name small town dicks <laughs> oh great <laughs> love, love that and um yes we you know it was very important to the detectives, Dan and Dave, that we have the utmost respect and reverence for the victims Mm -hmm. and that we not take the subject lightly. And uh, by and large, I am you. If you had a seat at the table across from the detectives and got to ask whatever questions you wanted to ask, I actually do very little talking. It really is a narrative of their investigation of how they went from soup to nuts in order to hopefully bring justice. Mm -hmm. And it's so – I've learned so much about justice comes in so many forms from an actual trial to a plea deal to this thing called an Alfred plea, which will fucking blow your mind and mm. make you so angry. Oh, no. Like, oh, God. Wow. Where, yeah, where the criminal says, um, I acknowledge that you have enough evidence to convict me, but I do not uh, acknowledge my guilt. Yeah. <laughs> That's so it's the most gaslighting no, bullshit. That is like some Real Housewives oh. fake apology bullshit. <laughs> wow. It is. Oh, no. So it's a plea deal, but yeah. it is without the criminal saying, yeah, I did it. I mean, it's infuriating. It's so wow. maddening, yeah, because so. I think that we come, uh, uh, like I'm saying the collective we, we as a society come from a false belief that it is as black and white as we have evidence that they're guilty. All right, lock them up. It, there's so many other nuanced so gray areas. So many dominoes Oy. have to fa- fall yeah. perfectly mm-hmm. in order for justice to be served. And even when these detectives, and we talk about it some on the podcast, where they have... A really, really solid case, and then the DA still won't file. 
Mm-hmm. And you're like, what? Oh, my God. I mean, it will just you make your him. head pop off. Oh, yeah. If it were a movie, you know, we'd be all screaming. You yeah. 100% yeah. would. Oh, my gosh. So, um, uh, yeah. but we're in our, yeah, we're, we're two years old, but we're in our fifth season. We produce about two uh, seasons a year. Amazing. Oh, great. Um, and uh, you can get it anywhere. We really are very, and you know what's most gratifying? We love our fans. They are so engaged. They're really phenomenal. But we also get a lot of incredible um, reviews from law enforcement. Oh, wow. say It's really well done. And, you know, I, I think especially for the detectives who come as guests on our show, but for Dan and Dave to get validation from oh my their God. own crew. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. From their own, um, from other other police officers it's it's quite meaningful that's yeah amazing that's like lewis black giving us a five-star <laughs> <I mean. laughs> uh so uh if, if you could give advice uh to the lisa simpsons listening to this podcast or <laughs> even to your younger self uh what what is something that you would tell them oh and it could be life or career in general. It could be anything in the world. Yeah. I feel like Lisa, the character, has done so much. And uh, and I will just say that, like, imagine how heartbreaking it would be to have you not be the person you are when Lisa is so incredible. There's a world in which you could have been perfectly Lisa. And then in real life, you don't care about people and you right. aren't passionate and you're kind of a tool. And it's such a <laughs> it's such a wonderful, fulfilling, great thing to learn that as we expected, and we've listened to commentaries and interviews, it's not like this is the first time anyone's heard you be amazing, but it's just so (laughs) nice that, you know, it's just so nice. It it feels like in tandem. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. That's that's really lovely. It's funny. I was asked not long ago what... First of all, I was asked, who's your mentor? And I'm like, "Mm, I don't really have a mentor. (laughs) And then I was asked, what's the best advice you ever got? And... I was like, Err. <laughs> uh, and so I came up with something that is true, but sort of flippant, which is be on time. Yeah. Right? Um, but I guess ugh, it's hard. I, I don't know. Um, play the long game. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's kind of sucky advice because <laughs> I, I get it. You know, if you're young, if you're a teenager and I and you are just fit to be tied and you're you feel like my friends fucking don't like me <laughs> and I cannot see my way out. You only see where the headlights hit the road, not the horizon. Yeah. And I tell you to play the long game. You're like, fuck you. You don't get it. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. And you don't understand me. Yeah. You don't know what it's like. Right. And even if I say I do, because I've been there, mm-hmm. you're going to tell me <laughs> you don't because you're not here now. Yeah. Right. I get it. <laughs> but I can tell you that I did. I was there. And I do get it. And there is, you know, just it is... Just play the long game. Yeah. yeah. It will always get better. Yeah. I, I love that. I think yeah. quitting is the only time that you really are stopping yourself. Like, right. Yeah. If you keep it up, you're going to make it. But I, I, I think that's beautiful advice. And I totally understand the teenagers of the world who refuse to see because <laughs> everything is very life or death when you're that age. But I feel like that is so true, especially for your trajectory. You know, we talked about like that early success that you got on the stage and how, you know, it can feel like this is my destiny and everything's right on time and I'm hitting all the boxes. And, you know, you think that you're climbing a ladder when really life is a little bit more, you know, unilateral of like... It's a mountain with no top. It's a mountain with no top. You know, right. things things uh, don't follow a, a specific order. So you could feel like you're climbing to the top and then you could feel like you're flung way back. But that's just not really what is happening. You have to play the long game to see and you truly don't know what's lurking behind the corner right yeah and to you know back to your equation of a plus b plus b plus z you know this notion that if you do everything right it's actually a straight line to success i think was one of the worst sort of um pieces of bunk i was ever sold Mm -hmm. and that there are so many switchbacks and and that that is and I guess the other thing I would say to that point is failure is a matter of perception. Yes. Right? So there were so many things that I felt like I had failed at. And in retrospect, of course, all of those things, if you allow yourself to recover from them, if you allow yourself to recover from them, (laughs) (laughs) um, really, really will make you stronger and make you uh, wiser 
and that failure, it's just a word, you know, it's not the end. Right. Yeah. And it's really hard to understand, like, it's not that you are a failure. What you did in this instance maybe failed. Yeah. And rather than having all your friends need to console you as a person for feeling better, allow them to maybe help you understand what could be improved upon in, in your script or your acting or your this yeah. or their yeah. It's so well said. We, yeah. You know, we even say on the podcast, even the detectives will say, you know, the suspect isn't a bad person. He just made a bad choice. Yeah. yeah. I and, love that. you know, that's pretty that's extraordinary. Empathy. It's empathy, indeed. Yeah. Even yeah. coming from these hard-boiled cops who've been in the business <laughs> oh in the gosh. career for 35 fucking years, right? right? I can barely get through an episode of ER. <laughs> They've right? seen some shit. <laughs> uh, so we, uh, uh, on Everything's Family Up, Simpsons would always ask our guests, which Simpsons character are they? Aside from Lisa Simpson, which character do you find uh, that you relate to the most or that you would want to be? I really love Sideshow Bob. Yes. I love Sideshow Bob. And maybe because there's that great episode where Lisa befriends Sideshow Bob. I love it. But I I love how goofily bad he is at being a bad guy. I do feel like Sideshow Bob actually has a really good heart. And if somebody just showed him some compassion, he would be a good guy. I mean, I love Sideshow Bob. Who doesn't? I I love that. This has been so much fun. Yardley, thank you so much for coming on our show. Thank you for having me. What a fantastic conversation. Such a pleasure. Uh, so, uh, listeners, uh, make sure to check out Small Town Dicks. Obviously, it is an amazing podcast, super fun. And, Yardley, where can people find uh, you online, or is there anything else you'd like to plug before we leave? Oh, I will say there's one other thing. I actually do these uh, little videos called Simpson Sunday. Oh, oh Which uh, I do. I put on my Twitter and my Instagram where I talk about things that are Simpson-y mm-hmm. um, and occasionally do my cooking show, which I call Oil and Water, where I have to draw one ingredient from a bowl. I draw a sweet ingredient, a savory ingredient, and then from a bowl, a thing. So it's like, it's a bake. It's a scramble. <laughs> it's a, a pandowdy. Your own right? personal chop. Yes. That's amazing. And then I have That's to fun. make it. I love it. I love that. And then I taste it. Wow. Oh, yeah. And so it's pretty fun. It's pretty cute. So, yes, most Sundays I put out a, a Simpson Sunday on my That's Instagram fun. and my Twitter. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much again. And Julia, where can people find ah, you? Thanks so much for asking. I'm at Julia Prescott on all the things. Allie, where can people find you? Thank you so much for asking. <laughs> you could find me at Allie Gertz and all the things. You could find us at Simpsons Pod on Twitter. And Round Springfield is a production of Maximum Fun. We're a member-supported show. Go to MaximumFun.org slash donate to contribute. This episode was engineered by booking manager Jesus Ambrosio, and our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Swish. Smell you later. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.